0: Welcome to the Ag Culture Podcast, where we cultivate tomorrow by inspiring agripreneurs and ag innovators through real life stories in agriculture. I'm Paul Windemuller, your host on this journey of exploration and growth. On today's episode, I had the privilege to interview Linda McDonald. She is a project development manager for Tetra Pak. She's got loads of experience around the world, and I'm really excited to. Uh, to have done this interview with her, we get into some really interesting topics, uh, some somewhat controversial topics uh, politically with what's going on around the world, uh, what's impacting farmers around the world, some of the, the uprisings that you're seeing, uh, some of the demonstrations that you're seeing by farmers and why that is and the impact that that's having globally on agriculture. So uh, I really appreciate her being willing to delve into this with her wealth of knowledge Linda is based out of uh, Sw- Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, she is somebody that's traveled all over the world, many uh, countries in Africa, and she's originally from New Zealand. So we'll get into some of that, uh, her past experiences, but she's a very humble person, but very, very knowledgeable person in agriculture. So please listen, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Linda McDonald, welcome to the Ag Culture podcast. How are you today?
1: Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: It's great to have you. You have a wealth of knowledge and uh, we're gonna delve into some interesting topics. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Um, You are right now in Stockholm, Sweden, is that right?
1: I am. I'm in the frosty frozen Arctic (laughs) of Stockholm, Sweden. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Kind of like Michigan, right? <laughs> oh. So uh, you are a uh, global uh, product manager or pro- sorry, project manager for Tetra Pak. Is that correct?
1: I am. I work in a very small team called Food for Development within Tetra Pak. And we're focused on building school milk programs around the world and also dairy development so that we can support our Tetra Pak processing customers in sourcing good quality uh, local milk. So I'm a project awesome. manager within that food for development team and dairy development.
0: Great, great. And we uh, met back in October. Uh, Paul Lofgren, the CEO of DeLaval, introduced us. Um, I was in Chicago attending the Global uh, Dairy uh, Platform Summit, and you were there for the uh, International Dairy Foods, uh, or sorry, Dairy Federation uh, World Summit, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, I was there at at the Chicago World Dairy Summit. I was there actually leading the Women in Dairy um, Roundtable, which was the first one that we've had.
0: That's great. And we're going to delve a little bit more into that in the interview here today. Um, But you were... Uh, somebody that really hit me. I really connected with you right away when we started talking. Uh, you love traveling around the globe, kind of like me. Uh, very passionate about dairy farms and uh, dairy communities around the world, and that is some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. So, if you wouldn't mind starting out, going into some of the places that you've traveled, uh, the reasons why you went there, and, and your experiences um, before you came to Tetra Pak.
1: Oh, I don't know where to start with that. Um... <laughs> But basically, I'm a I'm a farm girl at heart. I'm a farm girl from South Otago in New Zealand. I grew up on a sheep and beef farm back in the 80s in New Zealand and always wanted to be a vet. So went to Massey, tried to become a vet, didn't quite get in, carried on studying physiology and animal science because I really enjoyed it and uh, thought it, it was an interesting topic. So came out and then... Just sort of, I did a little bit of business as well, and then I sort of fell into the dairy industry, which seemed like a good place to be. Um, it was a solid, so, a solid industry, and there were a lot of opportunities within that. Uh, I started out as a nutritionist um, for sales ripping for a company, and then I moved into Delaval. So this was 19 years ago, and I, during my interview then, um, I remember my. Future manager then asking me, What do you want to do with your life? And I said, Well, I want to travel. <laughs> so if I could travel with work, that would be my ideal. Uh, and I I didn't really have any comprehension of where that statement would take me, but it really has taken me all over the world. I've worked in I've worked in thirty over thirty countries in all food producing continents. Wow. And I've been to some of the biggest farms in the world and the smallest farms in the world, right from Asia, Australasia, Russia, the Middle East, Scandinavia, North Africa, East Africa, the Americas. So, yeah, I, I didn't really know that that statement <laughs> that I made to my future manager in that interview would really lead me a, a long way.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's, uh, Quite a long list of experiences there and, <laughs> and um, really gaining a wealth of, of experience and knowledge over uh, a short period of time seemed like several lifetimes, I'm sure. But what are some <laughs> of those? Um, I, I know you're really passionate about the the smallholders uh, around the world um, and as well as, uh, as you mentioned before, the um, empowering women to, to be involved uh, in uh, gain confidence in, in sciences and agriculture.
1: Yeah, all of those things. I'm I'm really passionate about farming and food production in general, uh, and specifically like uh, ensuring that farmers are profitable at at all levels, whether they're smallholders or or large scale farming. Because being profitable actually enables better better animal health and welfare, better land preservation, better ecological systems farmers all over the world have the same thing in common they just want enough first of all to feed their families <laughs> you mm-hmm. know once you've got food on the table then you need to educate the family and then you need to have enough money for school fees whatever that may be um, and from there once you have enough in the family then you look at what you can do in terms of regeneration of the farm and the animal health and welfare and all that side of things so first and foremost I fully believe that farmers need to be profitable whether they're small scale or large scale just farming in general and in terms of smallholders I've seen the most incredible community development in 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 regions like in Kenya where I'm working at the moment I'll give you an example Paul which I think is phenomenal I'm working in in a region in Kenya called Githungwori. Now that that region has, I think, eleven and a half thousand suppliers, and they range from one, two cows to maybe I think fifty cows is probably the, the biggest farm around there. Like, mm. but that's an anomaly. But the average is about seven cows, and they were putting in basically the equivalent of 3 million US dollars in milk payments into the community in in milk payments every month about 5 years ago now they're putting in the equivalent of almost 4 million dollars in milk payments every month into the community and it's absolutely incredible to see the level of development and the vibrant communities. Like when you drive through these regions, people are so happy and they have what they need. They're laughing. They're, you know, the they're, they're engaged with each other. The they're, they're walking, they're on motorbikes. There's such vibrant communities. Whereas you go to communities that maybe don't have a really thriving dairy industry and people are sitting on the roads, they're sort of depressed, like there's no energy there the kids don't have as much energy to run around and play games and it, you can visibly see the difference in the communities between those that have a dairy heart and those that mm-hmm. don't because you know and a cow is it's it's money in the bank i mean you probably know it yourself right, right. <laughs> if, you need, if you if you need to do something you, know, you sell a few cows because you've got some bills to pay. Exactly. yeah yeah it's it's the same there if uh families have a medical situation or you know they've got something they can always sell a cow
0: yep that's a really interesting uh perspective um we'll come back to this i think later on in in the interview but um it's very similar in the u.s to that too right so you're talking about kenya uh when i travel around the u.s you see these towns uh maybe they're predominantly cropping towns the the uh Community might not be very vibrant. Uh, It might be kind of run down, the buildings are run down, you haven't seen a lot of investment in it. And then you go to, um, historically, you know, looking back 20 years or more, the the heavy dairy communities like in Wisconsin or Michigan or uh, California, these big dairy states that have really strong dairy communities um, regionally, there was a lot of investment. Uh, The schools looked good. there was a lot of stuff, community events going on, uh, Mm. because, um, from my perspective is, is you're taking in a crop town, you're, you're taking a, a base commodity, a base crop in a dairy town. You're, you're taking that crop to produce milk, which a lot of times had a processing facility in that town
1: that you ship to.
0: So you're, you're holding a lot of that value creation in that local area. Mm -hmm. And, and as you're seeing that, uh, kind of dissipate now uh, over the last 10 years, especially in the US, you're seeing those towns starting to get run down and, and uh, starting yeah. to kind of fall apart. So uh, it's interesting that you bring that perspective of Kenya. It's, it's, I think that's something that could be said pretty much anywhere in the world.
1: It's interesting because the New Zealand, um, the New Zealand media at one point reported how many roads, schools, and hospitals that the New Zealand dairy industry was supporting and contributing to they they took the the turnover of turnover of the dairy industry and directly correlated it with the the national infrastructure and that was a really oh. interesting way to look at it
0: <laughs> that is interesting so if you wouldn't mind telling me a little bit more about um about your i mean you you spoke at the IDF uh, World Summit you mentioned earlier this fall uh, back in Chicago when it was held there and that you helped lead the discussion, uh, the Women's Roundtable there. What were some of the things that you discussed with that uh, and and uh, how do you think that has an impact on on women in, in the industry?
1: We were looking at the empowerment of women in the dairy industry and basically the empowerment of women globally through all facets of the dairy industry, from farming and dairy production, right through to agricultural support services, uh, leadership of organisations, policy-making, scientists, regulatory, uh, all all of those levels. And we're looking at how the impact of women has a really positive effect on decision-making and how to get more women involved and empowered at, at all those levels to start um, or not start to continue and to to grow that visibility because women are essentially half of the world,
0: <laughs> you know. Exactly, and, yeah.
1: <laughs> and like um, a famous quote once said, "Woman hold up half the sky." <laughs> and and it's really well known like in the FA FAO there's so much research that says that if you can empower women, then you can actually really start to change a lot of the S D G goals, the sustainable development goals in the world, because women are so innately connected with with all of those. So the empowerment of women can accelerate the sustainable development at all levels. So it was we had a round table with a few, uh, specific questions on how to, how to get more engagement of a woman at different levels. And so the, the roundtable, we had about 50 people from all over the world, from we had a Kenyan dairy processor owner there, right through to women who are leaders in the US FDA and the Dairy Export Council in um, in the US. Through to Cornell professors, the director general of the IDF. So we had such a wide range of people there and with an incredible knowledge, all contributing. And really interesting, first and foremost, uh, the key point was in order for women to be in, in empowered and engaged in the dairy industry, first of all, basic human rights have to be there. You know, women have to have yep. access to owning land, to having a bank account those basic human rights must be in place first before you can have the growth after that. And once right. it's there, it's, it's just about enabling and nurturing that.
0: I find from, uh, from my perspective, uh, being a guy in, in agriculture, uh, you know, I, my wife and I started our farm and I always say that, that I didn't start the farm. My wife and I started the farm. And even though she's not involved a lot on the day-to-day operations of it, um, her perspective that she brings is completely different than mine. She looks at things very different than I do, uh, and I really appreciate that about her. And that—that's one of the things that's made our operation viable and strong—is that yeah. she different she has perspective stated. that I don't as as a male. You know, we're we're our brains work differently, but they work differently because when we work together, it creates a stronger environment. It creates a stronger business, and my. Um, in my example, that's that's been the case. I would
1: so agree with that, and you know, the New Zealand dairy industry has this incredible organisation called the Dairy Women's Network. It's been running for over twenty-five years now, and it's uh, it's really it's really focused on engaging and giving the technical skills to women at, at all levels of the industry, from you know understanding how to do a dangerous goods uh, certification on farm, right through to employment of people and HR and all the way through. Uh, and there was some, uh, some research done by one of the sister organisations, the Agri-Women's Development Trust as well, that looked at women's engagement into farming. And there's, there's uh, different levels of courses within this network. Um, the first one is called the uh first steps program and okay. the, there was a, a, a survey done of dairy women um, in farming partnerships around New Zealand and the common theme sadly this was about 20, 20 years ago that this was done the common theme was oh but I'm just a farmer's wife oh I can't do that because I'm I'm just a farmer's wife and the focus of the course is to change that perspective and say you're not just a farmer's wife. You are a 50-50 partnership in often a multi-million dollar business. Right. You are HR, logistics, admin, <laughs> finance. You're all of these roles within that multi-million dollar business. So it's to start building that self-confidence to say, yeah, I am I am a full partner in this business, not just a farmer's wife. And that that first step then gives the confidence to learn more of the technical skills and then I think the next uh, step of that program is governance courses and getting more women onto boards and governance roles throughout the industry.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I've met a few uh, women involved in that organization over my travels. So Of course, very, when you were there. Yeah, yeah. Very keyed on people. Linda, I'd like to switch gears now and delve into um, one of the really pressing issues that you see globally uh, it's kind of been silenced as much as it could be by, I think, by the by the media um, for who knows what reasons. But it's it's all over social media now. And and it's even starting to hit the mainstream media of of um, kind of unrest worldwide among farmers mm. and that are grappling yes. with these uh, repercussions and second order consequences of uh, government green initiatives around the world. So we're going to delve into that. Um, Could you start by giving some, I know you have some personal experiences that you've witnessed uh, going back to your local community in New Zealand. Uh, Could you start by giving perspective, uh, New Zealand perspective on on what was going on there and some of the uh, repercussions that have uh, come through because of the uh, initiatives that have been put in place by the government?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and i just differentiate the farmer protests that are happening all over the world, they are a combination of factors, mostly that the, the laws and the regulations that are being put on top of farmers in all of these countries are destroying the entrepreneurial spirit of farmers and and really depressing that innate need for farmers to do the right thing anyway. And to mm. do what they need to do in the right way, so farmers
0: are
1: deeply unsettled about this all over the world. Um, the The example that we that you mentioned from from my own experience is New Zealand farmland, food producing farmland, mostly sheep and beef farms, but also dairy farms. Actually, going into pine trees, monocrop pine trees. So we've got amazing <laughs> carbon sequestering, food producing, biodiversity <laughs> grow, growing farmland here that has been sold out to carbon trading schemes uh, and is being planted now as we speak in, in pine trees. The government have just put a, a, a pause onto this, which is great, but uh, for the last five years five years, uh, really, um, there's been a, a huge growth. I can give you some stats if you like.
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: Okay, so um, basically, basically the reason for this is that New Zealand is an outlier in allowing companies to offset 100% of fossil fuel emissions with forestry in the emission trading scheme, right, which is at odds with the rest of the world. So even China is like 10% or less. But So New Zealand has been very... Strange and that it's allowing 100%. So, because there's been no limits, there's been a massive surge in sheep and beef farms being sold to convert into forestry so that these companies can claim carbon credits. So, we have companies like IKEA, uh which is a Swedish company in the mm-hmm. country where I now live. IKEA is offsetting their carbon emissions and is buying farmland in New Zealand, buying it's what a huge. Uh, area of farmland down there where i'm from it's a beautiful area called the wisp which is just in uh, it's in the catlins area i don't know if you ever went to the catlins new yeah new beautiful Zealand? area it's an absolutely beautiful area and this is a bit personal to me because you know like um, i'm a sixth generation new zealander and so my ancestors four generations five generations back were actually involved in clearing all that land in the forestry to turn it into food-producing land, uh, and so it's a it's a beautiful area. IKEA has purchased a lot of that now, and is planning on pl- planting it in monocrop pine trees. Um, my family farm that I grew up on—it's now probably seventy percent pine trees. Wow! Our neighbours, when I grew up as a child, uh, they've just sold the farm last year. And it's being sold to a, a a forestry company. My my brother actually wanted to buy the house and about fifty acres of land around it, but he couldn't compete with the, the price that the forestry company wanted to pay. And I I said to my mum, oh, why did they sell to forestry? And she <laughs> she quite rightly said, well, they had four million reasons to sell. <laughs>
0: And, and these are uh, organizations that are coming really mostly from out of New Zealand, right? The carbon trading emissions? Yeah, Steve? that are buying this land.
1: It's international organizations as well.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and for me being uh, not from New Zealand, not being a New Zealand resident, I can't just go there and buy land normally. If I wanted to go and start a farm, uh, that's kind of off limits for, uh, for uh, foreigners to buy land usually, correct?
1: You'd have to go through their overseas um, investment office in order. So to do really, that.
0: yeah, they're they're really just focusing on only allowing uh, people, or businesses, or, or organizations that want to participate in these carbon trading schemes and uh, to have the opportunity to, to purchase.
1: Thankfully, now part. there's been a, a pause put on this, but for a long okay. time, years previously, it it was like it was open so generally farmers feel like it's a real kick in the guts mm. like you know they've put their their blood sweat and tears their life into this land and then if they're going to get four times a four times higher price for the land as opposed to other farming systems and you know they need to look after their retirement at an individual level i can understand why this is happening you know but at a at a national level you know this is really wrong Right. But individually, it, it it it's understandable, sadly, because you know there's not lines and lines of young people wanting to buy farms or that have the money to buy farms.
0: Yeah, and this makes that more difficult now, right? If if somebody did want to go into uh, farming, now they have less opportunities because there's there's less land available, there's less operations available that are yeah. already uh, in production, and it just makes the the environment more competitive to even be able to. Get into it, and and less profitable,
1: and less profitable. Yeah, here's some stats for you. Over the last five years, more than two hundred thousand hectares of sheep and beef farms have been purchased to convert to pine. Um, sheep and beef farms were around seven thousand dollars New Zealand dollars per hectare. Dairy was around fifteen thousand per hectare, and carbon farming twenty five thousand dollars per hectare. Wow. Um 57% of those conversions were on perfectly good farmland and 1.54 million animals have been removed from that farmland. And so this is a 5 billion dollar loss to the industry over the next 15 years. So this has some serious consequences.
0: Yeah. Again going back to that value coming out of those local communities and and really with those uh, carbon trading schemes all that's going back overseas—that value, right?
1: Yeah, uh, and well, the a lot of these carbon forests won't ever be milled, so yeah. that they they won't be they won't be milled for timber. There won't be any job creation there. They will just continue collecting those credits. Yeah. So, and there's because this is not managed as or not classified as as millable forestry, then there's different policies. That are linked with this. So they don't have the same policies in terms of making sure that there are fire breaks. So Mm -hmm. the community, surrounding communities are are quite rightly so worried about fire risks, Mm -hmm. the increase in pests. Um, And of course, it's going to lead to an increase in droughts, like an um, increased risk to communities if there are floods from the slash and the runoff. And probably what I get most passionate about because i'm because i'm so focused on the like social side of dairy development and what it can do for communities is i get really worried about the loss of loss of jobs and the decimation of the rural communities just like we were talking about before so we you know we don't have families that are working these these lands now we don't have farm workers that are employed on the land so if there's no people then you know, there's, there's no need for the kids to go to school because there are no kids. <laughs> so the school, the school rolls lower. You know, the accounting systems, uh, sorry, the accounting firms, the the mechanics, the, the local Any service business. Any service business, it, it all just goes down. And, and then we have rural communities that are not thriving anymore. Yeah. They're just existing.
0: So what's the importance of a rural community? Why, why not just let them go and die out, right? What In your mind, w- why does a rural community provide value to a nation?
1: Yeah, this is really important, actually. I think a few generations ago, everybody had a connection to a, a rural community. Yeah, they had a grandparent or a cousin or auntie or uncle who had a farm. And so people used to go and stay on the farm and they learn about life and death Mm -hmm. and how food is grown, and the length of time that it takes to grow a carrot. I know kids now that think carrots come from the supermarket and milk comes from a bottle in the supermarket. There's that disconnection from food production. And so back then we had much more connection with our rural communities between urban and rural, and there was a lot of support for the rural communities from the urban population. There is still the support from the urban population now for, for farmers, but there are some more polarized views coming because perhaps these people don't really understand about food production and food production systems and land.
0: What do you think the importance of, of the rural community is by itself? What outside of that connection with, um, with the urban centers, what values can that bring to a, to a nation in your mind? humanity human values
1: empathy i mean when you're when you when you're on a farm and you're in a rural community you understand the life cycle um, seasonality you understand the role that farmers bring in terms of food production but also the preservation of the environment I think rural, in my in my experience, rural communities are closer than urban communities. There's more connection. We we have a, a saying in New Zealand, and it's a very old Maori proverb. What's the most important thing in the world? Hetanata, hetanata, hetanata. It is people. It is people. It is people. Mm-hmm. And you don't see that anywhere more clearly than in a rural community. People care about each other. And they care about their neighbors. They care about people they don't even know because they're all connected and, and there's more understanding that we are all in this together. Whereas in, in a big center, I, I live in a building where neighbors don't even speak with each other and you, they don't, maybe don't even know who lives beside them. Yeah. And, and that disconnection, it's, it's not good for humanity in terms of, culture and, um, you know, in general, mental health and well-being, I think we see probably better, I mean, I haven't looked at any stats, but I would say there's probably better mental health and well-being stats in rural communities than there are in urban centers.
0: Well, I think too, just from a, a national security standpoint, you look at uh, food security is extremely oh, important, right? And I, I think that's probably the biggest case out there for, uh, for encouraging farms of all sizes and all varieties across a nation. Um, but you're not gonna have, uh, I guess an example would be my family, right? I've got six kids. When we go yeah. to a city, I realize, and my kids realize why most families in cities don't have six kids, right? <laughs> it's it's very difficult to raise more than one or two children in a city, right? Yeah. And where we have that opportunity in in, um, in the rural areas, there's room, there's there's things for them to do. Um, and, and we have that opportunity. And I think uh, a growing nation, uh, a nation that can repopulate is, is important for it to be able to continue to be successful. And that's Absolutely. another aspect that a lot your, of people you're forget doing about. we are your part. Right. We're, we're trying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but Paul, what you just said about food security is so important. We're seeing around the world more and more nations get focused on food security. And partly that's why I'm doing the job that I'm doing, right? Because as nations stop importing milk powder, and they start focusing on improving national food security and developing their local food production, food supplies. Then we we see the level of knowledge and inputs required to do this throughout the whole system. But governments everywhere now, with the current geo- geopolitical system uh, situations, sorry, all over the world, food security is high on the list of the agenda in terms of national security. So I honestly believe that farmers really need to be rewarded for food production, because of course, food security, that is that is first and foremost what humans need. Right, <laughs> you know, food, shelter, it, and water, right? Yeah, it's a basic need, it's a basic human right. And farmers need to be rewarded justly for that and to be profitable within it. But also they need to be recognized and rewarded for the role that they play and the guardianship of the land, the caretaking of the land and the preservation and regeneration of the land, the water, the soil, the biodiversity, the plants, all of that, those ecosystems. So they need to be rewarded for that. And it come, that comes hand in hand with food security. Because I think without without a focus on both, we're going to have a, a food system that is going to be challenged in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. How do we get that point across as as farmers and people in agriculture to government officials of their the green initiatives or the food security programs that they're trying to enact are almost exasperating the issues that that they're actually trying to solve.
1: I think this short term focus is part of the problem because governments want to come up with a fast solution. So they put in policies that are not robust, perhaps not driven by science or maybe driven by new science that maybe isn't Robustly tested, mm-hmm. so these policies come in and they're not fit for purpose. They haven't they haven't thought through all the unintended consequences. Like I'm pretty sure the people who dealt, developed that policy in New Zealand for the emissions trading scheme in forestry didn't understand that it would drive food producing land to be converted into monocrop pine trees. You know, but But had there been a a deep dive analysis of second order consequences, maybe that would have been, maybe they would have had the awareness about that. So I think governments need to take a much longer term view of policies with regards to food production, rather than short term quick fixes. And there needs to be much more rigidity and robustness around developing policy It has to be fit for purpose. They must bring farmers into this. For too long, policies have been made without farmers sitting at the table. And you know that saying: if if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yep. Farmers really feel like they're on the menu now.
0: <laughs> that is for sure. And,
1: and they need to be part of the policy-making process to ensure that it is robust and fit for purpose. It, it impacts farmers the most.
0: Yeah. And. Um... It's really interesting watching uh, social media and, and some of the news coming out of out of Europe right now uh, with German farmers paving the autobahn mm-hmm. with manure and things yeah. like that. Uh, in my mind, in order to get dairy, or in order to get farmers uh, that upset about something, uh, because we're really busy people, right? We don't have time yes. to to waste our time. So if they're that upset and spending that amount of energy and time they really um, care about it they really care about it and and they like you said they have to because as farmers we have a long we have to have a long term perspective otherwise mm-hmm. we don't have a, a business that's exactly. agriculture is long term and um the reason they're going out is because they can't just pick up their business and move to another country or move to another province or no. move to another area right it's it's all about the you, land
1: you raise a really good point and this is something that a dutch farmer said Um, said to me in a conversation a couple of weeks ago, if these these regulatory issues don't get solved, farmers are either going to, A, go out of business or, B, immigrate to other countries where they don't have those issues. So there's a loss of food production waiting to happen in those countries. And and this is another thing that I'm really passionate about is getting youth into farming. Mm Mm-hmm. We share that passion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I fully believe that farming needs to be profitable and there needs to be a way to for young people to see that farming can actually make money because if they don't see and understand that you can make money in farming, why on earth would they want to do it? It's hard work, long hours, and there's not a lot of thanks from the public right now. And if it's not profitable, what – Maybe just go and work in finance or gaming systems or something that you can have a nine to five and, and get paid more for doing it. So if, if we don't find a way to make it, make it known that farming can be profitable for young people in a generation, our food system is also going to be severely impacted. And that impacts food security and yeah, it's something that I worry about. So I, I think that we need to have mechanisms and pathways for youth to come into farming. And Paul, I know that you know this very well from when you were in New Zealand, but in the New Zealand dairy industry, there's the share milking system, and um, which is a pathway for anybody, not even having been connected to a farm. You can grow up in a town and you could go on a pathway to farm ownership within 20, 25 years because First of all you maybe start as a contract milker and then you build up and you get it like you maybe go from 15% to 25% to 30% of the milk check and then eventually you go to being a share milker where you might have the cows and the farmer owns the land and you split the milk check 50-50 and there's a pathway. We need to have mechanisms like that with, where young people can see that there's a pathway, that there's a, that there's a way for them to get into farming and it it needs to be known that farming can be profitable because I'll give you an example. When, when I was growing up, my mother always said to me on the side, don't you dare be a farmer and don't you, <laughs> don't you marry a farmer either. <laughs> she said, I don't want you to have a hard life like this because I grew up in the eighties where <laughs> subsidies were removed from, from farming and mum and dad had an interest rate of 28% and life was tough. You know, so be very tough. if if there are f- families around the world that have kids growing up and they see that you know life is pretty tough, there's not enough money to pay school fees or to go on school trips, or maybe they have to have secondhand shoes, then why would they want to come into farming? We need as a as a world we need to make sure that food production is more profitable and rewarded in a better way than what it currently is now, because we need to have the young people want to be engaged in the system and know that they can also have a good life and make money out of it as well.
0: That's a great point. And along those lines, you know if you're a young person you say, hey I want to have a 20 25 30 year career in this and you're looking and every three years or four years, the government completely changes the game and you have no idea how they're going to change it and one day you could be profitable and then the next day when they implement a new policy, your business model is completely shattered and and you can't yeah. make any money but you have all this investment that you had you had all this debt that you took on because yeah. this was the way it was going to go and and all of a sudden the the plugs pulled on you I think that's the as a farmer that's where I'm really frustrated mm. and I know I share that uh, a lot of people share that frustration with me is we can't plan that long term way that we need to as farmers because of of people that don't understand agriculture and government making policies that are completely um, they, they might be meaning well, but but they have no idea uh, what kind of consequences it's having, and it yeah. makes it really frustrating uh, as a yeah. business owner and a farmer.
1: And they seem to be disconnected from from farming in reality. Like the, the, just the simple act of making policy without farmers being involved is short sighted in itself.
0: So, do you think these uh, uh, demonstrations with with uh, manure paving in in Europe, or um, uh, some of the other things I've seen, uh, blocking highways. Do you think that's really the the right way to get the politicians' attention, or or what way should farmers be looking at to try and get the the policymakers to uh, think long term and and allow farmers at the table?
1: It's not necessarily the right way, but it's working, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it seems to be. It seemed to work it's in the Netherlands. They. They pretty much ousted the, the previous government that way, it seemed like. But. Yeah.
1: And the, the farmers are really well organized. They're taking this in shifts.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they
1: have it really well set up where they, they do shift work on blocking roads. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we know how to be efficient, right? <laughs>
1: exactly. Efficiency is right there. <laughs> um, it's, it's spreading as well. Yeah. Um, I've just seen videos of farmers in India and their tuk-tuks and their tractors Mm -hmm. lining up on the roads all the way to Delhi as well. So this is taking hold as a global movement. So, well, it's working. People are talking about it. Um, I saw the head of the EU Commission last week explaining how they're going to incorporate farmer views into the reviews of the regulations and the um the policies for food production in the eu so it's having an impact and farmers feel like they haven't been heard and listened to for a long long time and you know this is what happens when people are not seen and not heard because it it takes courage at at all levels to have a dialogue um, I saw a, a little book from the Nobel laureate a couple of months ago when I was in the Nobel Museum here. And it was, it just hit on the front cover. Those people who can listen will change the world. And in order to be able to listen, it takes courage and curiosity from both sides to understand what are the key drivers, what are the key consequences, what's actually going on, what are the impacts that we need to understand here. But if both sides, don't have the will, it won't happen. You know, something that I have learned in my travels is where there is the will, there is the way. Where there's no will, there's no way. That's exactly right. And and I tried for years to try and make change happen and get, get things done. And I was working with perhaps not necessarily unwilling people, but people who didn't have the same motivation for change as I did. And I, I learned that in a, in a big way when I was um, working in change management projects. Yeah, where there's the world, there's the way. If there's no world, there's no way.
0: So, Linda, at the end of the day, we really need to figure out as farmers how to keep getting our voice heard in, in a respectful but uh, but noticeable way. Uh, and I think that's that's farmers all, all around the world. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter if you're in the U.S., Sweden. Uh, New Zealand, Australia, wherever you are, it seems like we're dealing with these same issues on a, on a global scale. So we just need to keep going and have our voices continue to be heard and, and uh, help the government policymakers understand the long-term perspective and, and when they're making policies, uh, making sure they understand what what second and third order consequences are going to uh, arise from those policies if, if they're not made properly.
1: What a brilliant summary. I completely agree, yes, we need dialogue and we need dialogue at all levels through the policy making chain.
0: Do you see any any organizations or any platforms like that that you could tell our listeners that you believe would, would be the best way to go about that? I see a
1: lot of advocacy work done in many countries around the world. And it's done in many different ways. There are there are different names of farming organizations in every different country, but usually, you know, like there's Federated Farmers in New Zealand, for example. There's
0: Farm Bureau in in the U.S. Is a, is yeah, I mean,
1: there's so many different organizations like this. that all do have the same intention.
0: The the interesting thing about all those organizations too. Uh, they're, they're very different than, than most uh, corporate or governmental organizations. They're, they're always pretty much grassroots, right? Yeah, they are. It's a bunch of farmers just getting together and saying, hey, we, we need to do something to change their situation. Yeah. And I think that's what's so powerful about about uh, why farmers can make change happen.
1: I believe that farmers can make change happen. It's the farmers who have been standing up and saying, for example, about this emission trading scheme in, in New Zealand with the pine trees. It's the farmers who have been lobbying and who have created the awareness and have actually managed to put the hold on this happening at government level. So farmers have created the change. Farmers are courageous by nature. <laughs> I mean. <laughs>
0: or crazier.
1: <laughs> or crazy or, or a little bit of both.
0: We've, but, been, we've been accused of all of it.
1: <laughs> but you, you have to have courage to, to do what you do. It's. Yeah. It's a high-risk environment, really. It's unpredictable. There's a lot of variables. Throw erratic policy into that, and like you were saying before, it becomes even more risky. So having the possibility to be heard is, of course, important, but using that voice and making a difference uh, and and standing up for what's right, because often farmers have a – yeah, farmers do have a long-term perspective, and so bringing that is is
0: vital. Great. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, I know it's not an easy topic to discuss and somewhat controversial, uh, but I really appreciate you tackling it with me. And uh, I appreciate the the background that you have to bring a lot of perspective to it as well. So, Linda, uh, how can people get a hold of you if if you uh, if they want to converse with you or or find out more about what you do?
1: Ah uh, probably LinkedIn is the best way. Find me on right. LinkedIn and um, and send me a request or or an email. My email contact details are on there.
0: We'll put those in the show notes. so uh, thank you again for for being with us at AG Culture Podcast and uh, yeah, have a great day.
1: Thanks, Paul. It's been fantastic talking with you. Always interesting to hear your insights on things. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for listening to today's episode with Linda McDonald. I've got a lot of really good nuggets out of this interview and really good perspective on what's affecting farmers around the world today from a policy standpoint. Just some of the issues that farmers deal with on a regular basis that government officials don't understand the impacts that they're having. So I hope uh, we have a few government officials that listen to this and take some of this information to heart, some of these perspectives to heart. As always, if you would like to reach out to Linda, we will have her contact information in the show notes. And as always, we appreciate anyone that gives us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to this on. Check us out at our social media platforms, as well as our website, which is agculturepodcast.com. And stay tuned for next week's episode. We look forward to talking with you again.